ACNFers. Many of you know I love to crack open a, a beer on this pod. Sometimes it contains booze, other times it doesn't. I've been selected as brand ambassador for Athletic Brewing, a brewery that makes my favorite non-alcoholic beer. Shout out to Free Wave. I'm drinking that right now. It's their hazy IPA. And if you use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get 20% off your first order. Head to athleticbrewing.com and order yourself the best non-alcoholic beer I think you'll ever drink. I mean it. Also, I don't get any money. I get points towards like flair and and beer purchases, but but no money. So go check it out. I have always loved writing because it helps me understand myself. And it helps me understand the way that I feel about things that have happened to me. But beyond that, I think that there is also something very there is something very impactful about writing about your own experiences and other people finding themselves in in those stories. Oh, well, hey. Hey there, CNF. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast. The show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. But then again, you knew that. I'm Brendan O'Mara. But then again, you knew that. Today's guest is Katrina Miller. She's a physicist, what? And a damn fine writer whose reported essay, The Unwritten Laws of Physics, appeared in Wired magazine. I read that sucker, and I was like... That's me writing an email to her. And after 21 email exchanges... We got her on the show to talk about this essay and her work. Here's the, the deck of the essay. Quote, I never meant to be a trailblazer. I just wanted to be a scientist. But in my field, nearly every black woman is an anomaly who faces constant scrutiny for her race and gender. End quote. Ripe conversation, and we get into a little physics talk right at the top of the show and dive into the writer she always was but didn't manifest until recently. You're going to have some fun. I guarantee it. She's at underscore underscore Katrina Renee on Twitter. If you want to check her out there, give her the old follow. Why not? Show notes to this episode and a billion others are at brendanomero.com. Hey, there you can sign up for my up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. This is where it's at, CNFers. I'm not one to hang out on social media and scroll a whole bunch. I think it's a waste of time. I think you know it is too. Uh, but I am one to put a lot of effort into a kick-ass newsletter that entertains, gives you value, and sticks it to the algorithm, shoves it right up the algorithm's ass. And if that's your thing, sign up for it. Been doing it for many years, and it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun putting it together. I think it's a good read. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. All right, that's it. That's it. See you next week. No, what do you say we just get this show on the road? Get ready for some neutrinos and liquid argon. What? What was your dissertation on? Um, so I am currently finishing up. Um, my dissertation focuses on um, electron neutrino cross-sections. So cross-sections are just the rate of interaction um, that a particle has with a specific type of matter. And um, we have this huge vat of liquid argon at Fermilab that we call a particle detector, a neutrino detector. Um, and my particular project focused on how a specific type of neutrino called an electron neutrino, how often they um, actually will collide with their interactor, produce some type of detector activity um, inside of this large vat of liquid argon. <laughs> huh. What are the larger implications of that degree of research? Yeah, so um, I think particle physicists, me included, are especially interested in studying neutrinos because um, there is 
a lot of anticipation that they might be able to tell us about um, why the universe is structured the way it is. So one of the big questions in particle physics is, like, why is there more matter than antimatter in the universe? So, you know, going back to, like, the theory of the Big Bang, scientists think that matter and antimatter were created in equal parts, but somewhere along the cosmic timeline, that uh, balance got shifted into favor of matter, um, which is why, you know, when we look around us today, the entire world is just made up of matter and antimatter is very unstable in nature. Um, And so scientists think that by probing the properties and behaviors of different types of neutrinos, they might lend some insight into what caused this shift um, to create a matter-dominated universe. What are are some theories as to where the antimatter went to or disappeared to? Right. So I think that when we study neutrinos, what we're specifically looking for is, so the Big Bang Theory kind of postulates that matter and antimatter behave like mirror images of each other. Um, So, you know, the way that they interact with surrounding particles or antiparticles should be the same, but mirrored because they have exactly opposite characteristics. Um, But there has to have been some sort of deviation from this complete mirror image. So antimatter must act or behave some differently in some way, such that it created this imbalance that led to a depletion of antimatter in the universe. And so by studying neutrinos and comparing them to their behavior of antineutrinos, um, scientists are hoping to find a distinction between the two. Is is there any parallel between, let's say, matter and antimatter and like the chirality of certain molecules, whereas there you do have that mirror image, but one performs entirely different than the other? Yes. So you're starting to ask like really theoretical questions and I'm an <laughs> experimentalist. So I would need to go back to the books to <laughs> completely answer you. Um, but at, at base level, you can think of like, you know, an, an example of a matter particle is like the electron. It's negatively charged. It has a mass of a certain whatever unit you want to measure the mass in. But you also have you know, it's antimatter partner, which we call a positron or an anti-electron that has the exact same mass, um, behaves the exact same, except it has a positive charge. And so it behaves with matter very differently in the sense of the way it interacts via uh, charge forces, but it it would behave with antimatter in a way that looks like a mirror image of the way electrons behave with matter. Crazy. (laughs) It is kind of, it is kind of (laughs) nuts. Yeah. Well, yeah, the more the more and more you like the the science starts going into like, you know, that degree of uh, granular physics, which are certainly granular in your field, but they are just they contain multitudes. (laughs) It's a it's just it's wild and in all and all kinds of mind bendy. (laughs) Right. And I think um, something that very it's very non-intuitive in a sense. Right. Because when you start going far enough in physics you stop being able to understand the universe in terms of, you know, your own perception Um, because, you know, these particles are invisible. We can never see them with the naked eye. We can learn about them in our textbooks and draw pictures of how we, you know, how we, we think that they interact with each other or create formulas, but we never actually get to see or touch them or experience them with our five senses. At some point along the line, like this stuff really, really clicked with you and it kind of, you, you probably saw things other people like me can't see. And then you also, it just made sense on some level. Um, I, what was that moment like for you when you just kind of like really locked in to to physics and this degree of research and study? Yeah. So I think for me, um, I got interested in physics the way that many people get interested in physics. I always like to call astronomy a gateway drug <laughs> <laughs> into physics because you know, there is some, every, every person, whether they are scientifically oriented, whatever that may mean or not, you know, are interested in science or math, like every person has a sort of fascination with the universe at large and ask themselves like a question of like, where did we come from, you know, at some level. And so I just ended up taking like this astronomy class for non-majors as an elective when I was a freshman in high school. And for me, like I, I just wanted to know, like, I just felt this burning desire to 
understand the universe or the language of the universe and and even more so to understand what we don't yet understand about it. And so, you know, growing up, I was always very good at math. Um, Mm -hmm. I still love math. And when I realized probably a lot later than most that physics was kind of an application of math towards understanding the world around me, I, I just became very passionate about it. I really fell in love with it. When I think about physics and math and really where where I started to uh, lose my traction with math was right around Calc 2. <laughs> and I can really pinpoint the moment and really why it was why I started to slip. Uh, I, I lost I sort of lost the aptitude, but especially so when I, I started thinking of like Isaac Newton, like looked up into the sky and was. And, and invented calculus to explain what he was seeing. And I was like, I can't even understand this on the most basic level. <laughs> and here is this guy who's tapped into whatever cosmic power is out there. And he just invented it and, to make it all. And it all made sense. And it worked. And like, to me, that that blew up my brain in a way that a uh, few things have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's funny that you say that, because I actually, you know, my first couple of years in undergrad, I was planning on becoming a double math and physics major. And I got all the way up to, you know, I finished all three levels of calculus. And then I had to take this class called linear algebra. And that's when I was like, oh, I don't actually like math. I like calculus. And calculus is physics. Like you said, like calculus was invented or discovered, if you will, depending on who you talk to, um, to kind of discover you know, create a a framework to um, describe nature mathematically. And so for me, like when I kind of going back to your earlier question, you, you know, even as a physicist, I still, there still comes a point where it's no longer intuitive for me. And I think that, I think you just kind of get comfortable with that and know that, you know, if I follow the math, if I understand the math, I look at my observations and I understand my theory, then, you know, like that math will take you home. That math will always lead you to the right answer. And if it doesn't, you know, if it, if it, if the math is saying something that your experimental observations are not, then you have a discovery. I I love that the the math will take you home. Like that's just a great phrasing. (laughs) (laughs) That's what got me through quantum mechanics. So. Uh, who are your uh, as you're de- developing a an aptitude and uh, an affinity for for this kind of study? Like, who are some of the people you looked up to? Mm, that's a good question. I didn't I didn't have very many role models when I was a budding physics major, um, and it wasn't because I it wasn't because I didn't look up to people. I think it just was because I couldn't see myself in people who I admired, right? So, you know, my undergraduate advisor played a huge role. Phil Barbeau at Duke University played a huge role in, you know, giving me the confidence to see myself as a physicist. Um, My astronomy teacher at Duke also, you know, instilled some of the same confidence on the academic side, on the classroom side. Um, But there was never really... A moment for me until my senior year where I ever met a physicist who, you know, I felt like, oh, I can see myself in this person. I can see myself, you know, trying to repeat the trajectory or going along following a similar path to um, um, as, as they were. And so it really wasn't until graduate school when I started experiencing, you know, a lot of isolation and a sort of loss of self in the field that I started looking for these role models, which, you know, outlined in my Wired piece, you know, that's when I, when I started looking and found them. Your, your piece in Wired, I like how it's, it's almost like this detective story in a way where you're, you're trying to seek out uh, people, uh, you know, the, the women, the women of color, specifically black women in, in these, in physics and and it's just so grossly underrepresented and i loved how you were like were connecting the dots and connecting the chain as as small as that chain is or as short as that chain is it was very satisfying to read 
how you were piecing it together and how that lineage, you know, goes goes back a few decades and is like connecting to yourself. You know, as a scientist, <laughs> I am an investigator. And so I sort of apply, you know, a scientific process to also different areas of my life. And so writing this piece, reporting this piece was um, just another area where I was, you know, taking on the role of researcher, the role of investigator, um, and, you know, doing the analysis and drawing conclusions from it. Yeah, in, in a way, like, if, to piggyback on a term you used earlier, you know, like the math will take you home. In a sense, what was the math of this piece and how did that take you home to the, you know, your final sort of deduction, if you will, in this piece? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, the math was, you know, I just kept seeing patterns. I, mm -hmm. you know, every everybody who I interviewed, I kept hearing the same stories. You know, the walks of life were different. The time periods were different. The people, the characters in their stories were different. But I kept coming across the same patterns of, you know, interactions, of behaviors, of feelings, of emotions, um, feeling like they weren't good enough, feeling like they didn't belong. Um, and then that also resonated with me because those were also my patterns. And so I remember having a conversation with a writing mentor of mine, and I was just explaining how emotional this experience was for me, because I kept noticing the same things over and over again. And I will never forget when he told me, he was like, that's what you call systemic. And I was like, yes, that's exactly, that's, a, that is exactly what it is. This is systemic. And you know, you the one of the more pioneering figures and the one that's highest up in in your piece uh, deals with you know Willetta Green Johnson mm -hmm. and when you when you speak with her and dive into her career and see what uh, and just uh, sort of envelop yourself in in her journey like what did you see in her that you found you know just deeply inspiring and uh, you know sort of a catalyst for for your own career. Right. The first time I met Willetta Green Johnson, I think I was a little um, maybe intimidated is not the right word because I wasn't scared, but I was just so in awe. Right. Yeah. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just like, this is this is the woman who paved the way for me to be here today. Like this is this is my history. Um, and so there was something really, I think, powerful about that. And the first time I met Willetta Green Johnson was actually a couple of years before I started writing the piece. And I was still in a pretty toxic working environment. And so to hear her story and just sit in her presence was both heartening because it was like finally someone I can relate to, someone I can see myself in, someone who just gets it without me having to over explain myself or convince them that this is, you know, microaggressive or something that's, you know, beyond me and has to do with my identity. But it was also very disheartening in the sense that like, wow, we have a time period of maybe what she graduated in the late 80s. So 20 or 30 years of a gap and we're still experiencing very similar things. The, the stories that you are telling me, I could switch the names around and I could put myself in your shoes and be having the exact same experiences I'm having today. Yeah. And you, you talk about the systemic nature uh, of it all and where along the line through your research and in your experience, do you find that, you know, that, that, that people, sometimes women, sometimes women of color are either sort of like scared out of pursuing science or not, not scared is the wrong word, but, you know, kind of like, almost let's just say maybe discouraged from it and then maybe there it's just like the uh, you know people go a, a different route because there was nobody there to put their arm around their shoulder and say hey you know like i think you should really keep going with this right yeah discouraged i think is a really good word um or even maybe not discouraged but never encouraged right yeah yeah um and so something the scientist in me when i'm looking at this when I'm analyzing this data from all of my interviews um, and the reporting that I did, um, and I'm looking for patterns, the, the thing that I noticed that I didn't really get to flesh out in the piece was that all of us had very 
very supportive undergraduate experiences. And that led us to a point where we even were able to think about pursuing and try to pursue the PhD. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that made me wonder, well, you know, like what happens, what happens if black women don't have supportive undergrad experiences? Well, they probably never even make it to grad school to, you know, be able to have the experiences of what I'm going through right now. Um, Or what happens if, you know, when I was an undergraduate major, if my astronomy teacher never sat me down and said, hey, you are really interested in this. I think you should take keep taking more physics classes. I know, like, I know for a fact that I never would have thought to pursue a physics major because it was scary, you know? And so, you know, without, without having a support network and people believing in you, I think that there are probably a lot of Black women in physics and astronomy who don't even get to the point where they can call themselves physicists or astronomers before they feel that sense of discouragement that leads them out of the field. Yeah, and you talk about uh, earlier that part part of the genesis of the piece was uh, something of a loss of self, and I wonder through your reporting and your researching, and certainly the writing of it, uh, if you if you found a greater foundation and uh, to kind of use the 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 flip of loss of self, maybe is something of a gain of self. Yeah, so the the writing process itself was very transformative, as writing has always been for me. Um, so not many people know that before I was a scientist I was a lifelong writer um and so good we'll unpack that (laughs) (laughs) sure and so you know like I I had I'd been sitting on the idea of writing this story pretty much since I restarted my PhD in a new research group um and it you know as I'm coming up on my final year or very close to dissertation and and defending my PhD, I thought it was just a good time to start to reflect on my experience, but not only my experience, you know, also the echoes of the experiences of the Black women who came before me. And so, you know, like, I think I kind of had a general idea for what I wanted the story to say, but I didn't have the words for it. And through the process of writing, I actually went beyond it because I realized that me writing this piece on such a public, widely read platform was a reclamation of self um, and Mm. a reclamation of my voice um, in the times that I felt like I had to be silent um, or let me amend that in the times where I was silenced. Right. Um, And so there, you know, my editor really pointed out to me that, you know, there are so many times in the personal parts of my story when I didn't say anything or I chose to be silent instead of standing up for myself because I didn't feel like I had the agency to speak up. And so, you know, like having these experiences and now writing them and sharing them with people that I went through this and I got through this and look, I'm still here um, was a gain of self in the sense that it just really allowed me to reclaim those experiences as part of what what got me here. Now you you said you were a lifelong writer before you took a a, a dive into physics and such. So uh, uh, take us to to that moment of where you first developed your you know I obviously a love of reading and of course a love of writing. Oh right, so um, I was yeah I was an avid reader as a child. Like I my mom was taking me to the library every week and I was checking out the maximum number of books I could check out, which I think was six in the children's Mm. library. Um, And I was just reading anything that I could get my hands on. I went through, I think one of my favorite series was like the Magic Treehouse series, as I think what it's called. And I just, I was devouring books. (laughs) And (laughs) so naturally, you know, like as an avid reader, when you're a child, you want to emulate. And so I started writing. And so writing for me has just always been a way to kind of process the world around me and understand my thoughts and feelings and observations um, that I was experiencing. One of the earliest (laughs) things I remember writing, um, and I remember showing my mom, and she still laughs about it when she tells this story today, is I wrote a story about me and my older brother, who's two years older than me. um, 
entering a cave and coming across a cave monster and he got eaten by it. But of course oh. I survived. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, you know, like I didn't really understand why my mom was laughing so much or why she thought it was so funny. But as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> that is the epitome of me and my brother's relationship growing up. So <laughs> did he pick on you a lot? He did pick on me a lot. And I was the quintessential <laughs> little sister. So, <laughs> but I actually, I stopped writing um, when I hit high school and it was just because I, one, I was just getting more busy with other interests. You know, I was running track, I was playing basketball, I was playing instruments, and I was also taking my academics more seriously because I wanted to get into college. Um, but also, I think, you know, I was dealing with a lot of things um, as a teenager that I didn't really want to process, um, I didn't want to understand. And so, I didn't want to write them on a page um, where it would make them real. And so I, I stopped for a long time and I missed it a lot. But, you know, during that time, I developed a passion for physics, um, just got really busy with college. And, you know, it really wasn't until the pandemic that I picked up the pen again. What were some of those things that you didn't want to process when you were in high school? Um, I think my mom getting divorced with um, mm -hmm. her husband, my stepfather, um, led to a lot of different changes about the house, um, this, the environment of the home that were really difficult for me. Um, I was having, a, I, I had a very turbulent relationship with my mother at the time. Um, my brother had gone away from for school, so it was just me and her. Um, I started dating, you know, I wasn't really having the best relationships. A lot of them were very toxic and you know, so I just, I wasn't really having a good time and, and the things that I was experiencing were not things that I wanted to remember. So I didn't want mm -hmm. to write them down. Right, right. It it, it seems like it, just from speaking with you, you know, uh, or earlier just in this conversation about how like, you know, like kind of analytical and uh, the approach that you had of like being very scientific, it, uh, to me that, that's that says something that you, you like a certain amount of like structure. And it sounds like maybe during that period, it, it seemed like things were a bit in upheaval and that might've been just a, I don't know, disorienting, especially being you know a teenager. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, like I probably, you know, when I think about it in retrospect, that is probably the time where I needed to write the most, <laughs> you know, yeah, to yeah, just yeah. kind of get things out. Um, but I, I just, you know, I didn't, I just, avoided and I moved on to other things. So, you know, what, uh, you know, at what point, at what point do you, do you, uh, kind of discover writing again? What was it like you said at the you know, beginning of the pandemic or was it maybe a little before then? So I think I, I started thinking about writing again when I went to like a women in science symposium and I listened to this, um, this woman speak about how she had gotten a PhD in math and now she was a science journalist, um, a science and health journalist. And I remember watching her talk and being like, oh my gosh, like I had no idea that there was an intersection between writing, which is a skill that I love and I know that I'm good at, um, and science, which is my expertise. And so, you know, like I kind of bookmarked in the back of my mind you know, like, oh, this was the internship program, the fellowship program that she did um, to kind of help her pivot from an academic science career to journalism. And maybe I'll apply for that someday. And it was, you know, every summer would go by and I was like, oh, you know, like, I don't have time or I would try to start an application and I'd get extreme writer's block because I hadn't practiced <laughs> personal writing in a, in a long time. Um and then I just kept putting it off. And I think um, when the pandemic hit, you know, there was a period of kind of dead time the first few months of the pandemic where everyone was like, oh, I don't know what exactly is going on. Uh, standards of productivity kind of lowered. And, and that just gave me a lot of time to think, right, about the my future career path, what I wanted to do, things I wanted to try, things that I felt like I had missed out on because, you know, pursuing a physics PhD is very time intensive, as you can imagine. Yeah. And so I just said, you know, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to really try this year to 
to start writing again. And, and, you know, that started with, you know, an anonymous blog, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. just writing things like movie reviews or, you know, things I did today, or here's a craft I put together, you know, just random things just to get warmed up, I guess. And, um, and then I asked, um, actually I, I applied for this smaller internship with the physical sciences communications office at my university, um, and asked them if I could, you know, just be a, a part-time science writer for some, uh, a quarter. And that's really, that really, I think gave me the structure that I needed because there's something about external deadlines (laughs) that motivate me, (laughs) but that gave me the structure I needed to really kind of take myself more seriously as like, okay, I want to, I want to think about journalism and science journalism in particular as a, as a potential career path that also gave me, you know, public facing bylines that I could use, um, on my resume to help me apply for this fellowship, which I got at Wired. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I didn't realize you had a a, a, a fellowship through through Wired. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's cool. Yeah, so I um I did a fellowship with Wired. I was a full time science journalist um in summer twenty twenty one, and at the end of the summer is when I pitched that Wired feature. And so I'd been working on it pretty much for a year by the time it came out in June. Yeah, so maybe uh, get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of how you went about. Uh, you know, researching the story, like where they, maybe where the idea really came from and then how you sunk yourself into it. I think maybe this is mentioned in my story, but essentially there came a point in time in my grad program where I was feeling very lonely, very isolated. Um, I felt like no one could really understand or relate to what I was going through. And so I started wondering, like, who else has walked this path? You know, is there anyone like me? am I the first? Uh, What does it mean for me to be the first? You know, and so I had known of Willetta Green Johnson by the time I pitched the piece because I had had those feelings and and reached out to her, you know, found her online and reached out to her and had breakfast with her before I ever pitched the piece to Wired. Um, And I also was aware of all of the other women at the time. But I think... I think coming into my last year as a PhD student, I was like, it's time to really be serious about stringing our stories together and see what I can find. When some that we have like an idea in our in our head when we're we have like a this a vision in our head of what the story or the essay or whatever it's going to be is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And but then when we sit down, it's sometimes it's like, wow, this isn't really aligning with the vision I had. <laughs> right. And I wonder I wonder what that might have looked like for you as you were generating this piece. When I started, you know, uh, freelancing part-time and doing science journalism part-time, I was very nervous about putting my writing out there because, you know, I've been a lifelong writer, but I was a very closeted writer. And so I didn't mm. really like people reading my work. And then I got comfortable, you know, after so many pieces, you kind of get comfortable um, with people reading your work. But tackling a personal piece is very different because it was, you know, it was a lot easier to have people read your work when you're sort of detached from the subject, you know, like I'm not writing about myself or anything. And so when I actually, the first, the first pitch that I sent, um, the wired editor, the features editor there, it really didn't have any of my own story in it at all. I was like, I, you know, these women are people who I look up to and who have, you know, just been almost like a, a, you know, just a a list of names that I could refer back to, you know, in times of doubt during my PhD. And I want the world to know them because they are essentially modern day hidden figures. You know, I don't even know if people in my department know who they are, but they should be celebrated. And so, you know, my thought was like, I'm not even really going to talk about myself. I'm just going to report this piece and talk about their experiences and, and their resilience and how they made it through. And my editor sent back the pitch and was like, this is a great idea, but I want you to insert yourself more into the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's when things got really hard. <laughs> huh. um, and that was something that I think I was 
internally fighting with going back and forth with my editor on throughout the, you know, the, the, all of the months that I was working and writing and reporting this piece is how much, you know, how do I strike that balance between like my personal story and using that as a sort of like a, a drive for investigation of these other women's stories. Um, and so it, it didn't turn out the way that I imagined it, but I think that the piece turned out the way it needed to be. Yeah. What were the, what was the conversation like of having you be some, some more of the connective tissue in, in the story that Um, you're having with your editor? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, some examples were like, there was a question of whether if I should write the story chronologically. So starting with Willetta Green Johnson and then mm-hmm. moving on to Tanya Venters and Casey Stevens Fester and just going in order and then leading up to me at the end. Or if I should try to structure the piece as like we are starting with me and then we're jumping back in time and, and revisiting each of these women's stories. And so we tried a lot of different things. I was probably always the one saying like less of me, <laughs> more of other right. people, yeah. more of other people. Um, and so I honestly, like, I think that I needed that viewpoint from my editor because um, the balance that was struck in the end felt right. I think another thing was the ending. So the end of the piece, the the, the final scene of the piece is like, you know, the four black women who are here at the University of Chicago today, um, sitting together at a table, you know, having our own space, creating our own space in a space that is otherwise not always very welcoming. And there was some question about, you know, should we end with this community, like scene of community, or should we end on the individual, on me, on like wrapping up my story? And so there was a lot of like shifts and back and forth and rewritings about, you know, like what's the, what's the right, um, approach for the ending. And I think it kind of ended up as a combination of both. Yeah, you do. And you end the piece. It's, uh, it's weird. It's, it's something of a turn because you go through the whole, the whole piece about studying physics, being PhD, defending your thesis. And, uh, and even at the very end, it's like, you're almost like, uh, as you're standing on the shoulders of all these incredible people before you, uh, it's it's like uh, you're al- you're almost but not quite almost stepping aside to like all right well I'm not gonna quite do what that what what they're doing I'm gonna actually you know be a writer so that was a uh, that that surprised me when I came to it I wonder <laughs> if that surprised you as you were writing it um, I think by the time that I wrote the piece I knew that I wanted to pursue writing and science journalism and creative nonfiction, but I wanted to, and my editor wanted to make sure that the readers who we took along on my journey with me through the piece didn't, you know, hit this realization and be left with feelings of like sadness or disappointment of like, oh, you know, she didn't succeed or, you know, she was robbed of her dream. And so I really wanted to write the ending um, so that people knew that, you know, like I'm not leaving academic physics for lack of opportunity. I'm here. I'm going to get this PhD. I've been through too much not to get this PhD. (laughs) Me choosing my own path in the face of that is a type of empowerment in itself. Um, And if there's one thing I learned from where all of the other women who came before me ended up is that you really have to, you have to retain the agency to, to choose what's best for you. And so for Waletta, that was, you know, teaching, that was teaching physics, not engaging in, in academic research. For Tanya Venters, that was, you know, becoming a research scientist at NASA. So not even staying in academia, um, but staying academic adjacent um, and for Casey Stevens Bester, that was pursuing a tenure track position at a university. Yeah, and when I wrote, read the the piece, and I, I read it a couple times because I had the time to do so, and it was it it struck me it was definitely a piece, a science piece written by a writer, 
not a not a scientist. As not to discredit your skill as a scientist, but I could definitely I felt the the skill of a writer behind this, and uh, I it, I don't know. This just that's the pulse I felt felt throughout this whole thing. I'm like, oh, here we go. Like this is going to be maybe maybe going to be one of the more like on the forefront of great popular science writing. Thank you for that. Um, I think even though I, you know, stopped writing um, per se by the time I got to high school and college, I still was using a lot of the skills um, of understanding the world around me um, through writing just in a different way. Right. And so, you know, a lot of, I, I get a compliment all the time in my field is like, oh, you're such a great science communicator. You're such a great teacher. Like you really just explain physics in a way that people can understand that feels accessible to people. Um, you know, even, you know, as I've started doing science communication through journalism, it's the same thing as like, you really break things down for people in a way that, you know, feels like, you know, even if you don't have access to scientific spaces or, you know, expertise, you can still understand it. And, I, I always say that, you know, like the skills that I learned as a writer and learning how to understand the world around me are the same types of skills that I transferred when I tried to understand physics. Um, and so now kind of like merging those two things doesn't really feel, it doesn't really feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Who can you point to as some of the models or, or mentors sort of in this field of 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 science writing that uh that you 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 want to see yourself you know pursuing or kind of going down that path oh wow um so for this piece specifically i think i i drew inspiration from many different types of writers i don't even know if i would call them all science journalists um Mm -hmm. so the one piece that i really studied a lot um, is called the Standard Model, um, and it's by um, Joshua Robka. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I'm going to apologize if it's not. It's R O E B K E, um, and it's it's essentially a first person essay about you know him going to this conference to report on um, the 50th anniversary of the Standard Model of particle physics, which is basically the the particle physicist version of the periodic table. And he's supposed to write this story, um, painting the conference in a good light. And, you know, he can't, he can't help but mention that there are still a lot of disparities um, with race and gender that exist in the field of physics. Um, and so he decides to, you know, kill the piece and, and write his own first person account of it, of the entire experience. And so, that for me was like a piece that I read several times when I was having writer's block or lacking inspiration. Um, another piece or a book actually that I found to be um, very helpful in crafting this wired feature is by uh, Chanda Prescott Weinstein. It's called Disordered Cosmos. If you're familiar, no, um, no I have to look that up. I, I heavily encourage you to look it up because it's a again, it's a first person account. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a pop science book. Um, so it's about, you know, like all of the wonderful things, um, all of the wonderful, uh, concepts of astronomy and physics and the universe and the mysteries of the cosmos, um, through the lens of a black, agender woman, um, who is pursuing an academic career and how that has shaped her experiences and her perspective on the physics. Um, And so just weaving, you know, like the science, blending the science and the narrative, like the first person account together, I think was a big source of inspiration for me. The other piece that comes to mind is um, there is a New York Times feature called The Hidden Toll, and it's about the high rates of mortality um, for Black women who are um, in undergoing labor in labor. Um, I think mm. it's written by Linda Villarosa. I think that's her name. Again, it's just like, you know, the way that the writer inserts herself into the story, a reported story um, was some is something that I don't see very often. 
And when I do see it and it's done well, like, it's just, you know, like it's that feeling of, wow, I wish I could, I wish I, I could have written this or why didn't I think to write this, you know? So. (laughs) Yeah. That's the, that's the really funky balance of doing a reported piece, but inserting just enough, uh, of yourself as the author into the piece to right. Im- imbue it with that extra dimensionality without calling too much attention to yourself. Like that's the rub. Right. Right. Ex- exactly. And it was a, it was a very difficult balance to strike. And I think, you know, there were, like I said, there were definitely arguments with my editor about how much, because she was like, I want more of you. I want more of you. Readers are going to want more of you. And I was like, no, I don't want to put the spotlight <laughs> on me. If we have a specific word count, I want to keep these words for so-and-so, you know, so. How did your editor sway you to get more of you in the story? Like, how did you acquiesce to that? <laughs> <laughs> I think because I, she helped me to realize that, you know, like this piece was very, you know, Wired is a is a national, if not international publication, right? So it's read by people from all walks of life who may or may not have any connection to the University of Chicago. But this story and all of the people in this story and the the scenes that happen of this story all happen at my university. And so I think for me, it finally clicked when my editor told me that, you know, like to make this story impactful, like readers need a reason to care about this story and they are going to find that through rooting for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. Sometimes, uh, well, Lawrence, right. He, when he's writing long features or even books, he, he calls like his main character, um, like a mule, like someone that is going to carry you through the story. And like, in this instance is like, you know, not to <laughs> dehumanize you, but it's like, <laughs> but it's like, it, it's, it's like you needed to be the, like the one who shoulders a lot of the, the narrow, like a root, the rooting interest, as you were saying, cause you know, you'll pull us through. And by when we latch onto you, we're going to trust you and go along with you for the journey. So then, then you're going to convey the message of these, of these women that you're trying to celebrate, but you do, you do it by getting us to care about you. Right. Absolutely. So I am the vessel. And I think the other thing about that is that no matter how good of a reporter I am (laughs) and how pointed or interesting the questions that I ask my sources, I can never get as much vulnerable color in a story than when it's coming from myself. Right. Um, And, and so, you know, like, centering myself in certain parts of the story allowed me to be so intimately vulnerable with the readers in a way that you can't really get when you're reporting about someone else. Now you've, you've brought up, you know, writer's block a couple times and uh, you know, some, some people have their own ways of getting through it. Some, some people believe in it. Others don't Uh, for, for you, how do you, how does it manifest and how do you work your way through it? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, Writer's block manifests as procrastination for me. So, you know, I think I got my official assignment maybe in August sometime, August 2021. And I don't think I actually sat down to start writing until like January 1st. These dishes aren't going <laughs> to clean themselves. Yeah. And it was <laughs> like a vacuum. <laughs> exactly. And it was just like, a panic driven sort of thing. Right. Um, (laughs) and so, um, let's see, I, I have several strategies. I, I try a lot of different things when it comes to writer's block. Um, and I think for me, um, the things that help are turning off spell check and grammar check because I want to edit (laughs) while I write. Uh And I find that I am not a great multitasker. That's something that I've realize about myself through this whole PhD process. And so I really need to focus on one task at a time. And so I'm like, let me just get the words on paper. And if it's, if it's going to be a shit draft, it's going to be a shit draft. But I know that once the words are on paper, I can, I can sculpt out something great. Like I, you know, people will tell me I'm a great writer, but on the inside, I'm like, I'm a good editor. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 
And so well, it's the old adage of writing is rewriting. So it's exactly. like, like you're saying, you're like, you need to build up the rubble and, or, or the old, like uh, the, the block of marble. And at that point, you like, you can start chiseling around it, but you need to, you need to conjure that block of marble first. Right, exactly. And so, you know, like sometimes turning off spell check is enough. Sometimes I actually need to leave a word processor. So I will go write in like Apple Notes or something that feels less formal. Um, sometimes I, instead of writing paragraphs, I'll just do like very, very detailed outlines until they basically turn into paragraphs <laughs> when I remove mm-hmm. the bullet points. Um, and sometimes I, I write by hand. Um, like I journal, um, because I feel that just stepping away from the computer and writing by hand, there's something a lot less formal about it. And so I'm less worried about making it perfect because, um, I know that I'm going to have to reread and re rewrite and transfer the words onto the computer at some point. And so I can just allow myself to kind of like, I don't know, lower the expectation I have for myself to write something good. Yeah, I like the 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 notion of writing longhand to uh I'm I'm reading Robert Caro's um memoir of his work called Working uh, about how he goes about writing biography and he's written these thousand page biographies on Lyndon Johnson and he's got another one coming out I think in a year or two but uh he, this basically crafty memoir came out uh, I think within the last year or two, but he's a big thing. Like he's, I mean, he's in his eighties, but through it all, even his book drafts, he's written them in longhand oh, at wow. first. So like, and it's painstakingly slow, but I can see <laughs> the value in it, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I'd ever write a whole book <laughs> on paper, but I definitely see the value in like, you know, just getting things out, um, as a first draft. Now there's the, the power of you know you you brought up focus in and uh, by by virtue of that uh, attention and you said like you're not a good multitasker and few people are actually I don't think we're supposed to be multitaskers but uh, you know we were really conditioned to try to do more more than we can in the time that's allotted to us so uh, you already you brought up a couple of things that help you focus be it turning off spell check or, or grammar um, but what are some ways that you go into the cave and remove distractions so you can really focus on doing the work? Oh, uh, that's a good question. So I recently invested, not recently, maybe a year and a half ago, invested in like soundproof headphones, over the ear headphones, like Uh the 90s. And that has helped immensely. Like I will literally just, you know, go to a desk in the corner, put on my soundproof headphones and just lock in. Um, Very recently, as recently as like, Last month, a friend told me that um, they work better when they have a hat on because it's like a thinking cap, literally putting on a thinking cap. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I do this thing where I put on a cap and my headphones over it. And it just feels like I I highly recommend everyone try it. You just really get locked in. Um, Another thing I do when I'm writing longer pieces is I tend to I've noticed Um, that I tend to have specific soundtracks for them, kind of like not officially, but I will listen to certain things depending on the, the, I will listen to certain music depending on the thing that I am writing. Um, And so there was a, I wish I could remember the name of the YouTube video. It was like a three hour lo-fi YouTube video that I would just stream every single time I sat down to write my Wired feature. Um, and it's the same thing with my dissertation. I have a different album that I'm listening to <laughs> nonstop. Um, and I, I put that music on every single time. And that just signals something, I guess, in my brain to tell me that, okay, it's time to focus on this task at hand. Now, you mentioned that sometimes when you're when you're writing, you'll do essentially kind of a, an outline-ish kind of way to go through the draft just to get the momentum going and then you kind of remove the bullets. Are you something of an outliner when you work on a long piece? Definitely. Um, I think that, I think that there's um, a good balance to be struck between, you know, just free writing and outlining. And I tend to do a combination of both. I will outline until I hit a point where I feel stuck on my outline and then I'll just free write 
until I hit a point where I feel stuck and I'm like, okay, I need to go structure again. Um, so I, I tend to go back and forth between the two. You know, now you've you've got your your science background, and you always had the writing bug, if uh, the writing bug, if you will. Uh, so, like, what is it? You know, what does it mean to you to like to to be a writer? Why is it important for you to like to? You know, what is it? I, I guess let me try to rephrase this differently. It's um, you know, it's something of a calling, I guess. And you know, there's little there's a little fanfare. It's a lot of work on your own, so you really have to have your own internal engine about it. And I wonder, like, for you, like, why does it matter to be a writer? Why is it important to you? Yeah, I think. There are a couple of answers to that question. Um, for one, I've I have always loved writing because it helps me understand myself, and it helps me understand the way that I feel about things that have happened to me. But beyond that, I think that there is also something very there is something very impactful about writing about your own experiences and other people finding themselves in, in those stories. Um, and so for me going back to, you know, my wired feature, I, by the time I submitted it and it published, I was so over it. I was so ready to be done. I didn't want to look at it anymore. I was like, I don't even know if anyone is going to like this. The shock factor was gone for me. Um, I was too close to the story. But um, since then, and continuing, you know, to today's, um, I think as most recent as yesterday, actually, um, I have I've received so many emails and notes and LinkedIn messages and Twitter messages and Facebook messages and just, you know, of people telling me how much they resonate with my experience. Um, and for me, that really made as emotionally turbulent the process of reporting and writing and editing was, it really made it all worth it because I could put something out that I was proud of and have people find some sort of solace in it in the same way that I found solace in other people's stories. And that was really impactful for me. Well, even going back to earlier in our conversation, when you talked about a loss of self and putting this piece out there, I imagine that a lot of these messages that you've gotten are are resonating with people because they've probably similarly felt a loss of self and they probably felt very as as lonely as you cite in 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 the wired piece and now they're realizing like oh i'm not as alone as i thought i was right um the one email that really was memorable for me was this it was an older woman and i don't even know her last name um or where she was from but she told me that she had tried to pursue a chemistry degree back in like the eighties or nineties. Um, and she wasn't brave enough to finish. This was her words. And that, and she really commended me on my strength and courage and bravery. Um, and I think what I ended up writing back was, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, it takes a lot of strength to finish, but it also takes a lot of bravery to walk away from something that you know is not for you. And that was the only exchange we had. And I think her original email was maybe like two or three sentences, but it just really, I don't know, it just really stuck with me for some reason. Oh, yeah. Well, it kind of gets to your, you know, you're echoing your experience too of investing all this time into academia and you're, you know, you're, you're sidestepping that to be more of a science journalist and to pursue these more just creative nonfiction-y pursuits. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard cause there's the whole sunk cost thing. You're like, I spent all this time doing this. That means I have to yes, see it through. Exactly. It's very hard to make that pivot. Yeah. And, um, I think that for me as a black woman, there's also a lot of guilt that I've had to sort of process in that, you know, like there's, there is a, unspoken 
burden. I don't know if I would call it a burden, actually. Um, it, there's, there's an unspoken weight that is placed on Black women in physics to succeed for the next generation, right? Like, right, be yeah. the change that you you want to see. And, you know, like, so for me, a lot of times what kept me going was like, you know, even though I couldn't feel the passion that I once had for physics, I have to do this for the next woman so that she can, she can see me as a role model in a way that I didn't have one until I, you know, came to grad school. Um, and so I, it was a very difficult decision to stand up and say, no, like I, I can't sacrifice my own goals and the things that I want for myself for the sake of a cause. And through that, realizing that there is more than one way to contribute, you know, to, to the cause. Um, and so just because I'm leaving academic research doesn't mean that I'm not a physicist, right? Like it doesn't yeah. mean that I didn't, you know, and I think, calling myself a physicist and pursuing a degree in writing is a form of challenging the notions of what it means to be a physicist. Um, because I will always call myself a physicist. I think I've earned it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Like, yeah. like just, just based on the exchanges we've had over the last few months, it's like, I can, I, I'm just not, I'm like, Ter a tertiary uh, satellite to to the the rigors that you've gone through. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> I appreciate your patience. <laughs> oh no, they think nothing of it. I just mean I I just I say that only to underscore just the 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 weight of doing that kind of work, and it's just and the fact that you're able to uh, construct a a piece of this nature and to start to make these other pivots with. Uh, you're trying to wrap up your PhD and in a very, very complicated esoteric wing of, of physics is uh, just an incredible accomplishment. And it's, uh, it, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Like you got to wear that physicist title proud. Thank you. Yeah. So I, you know, I like to think of it as, you know, I am a physicist and, you know, to add on to that identity, I'm also claiming the, the career of writer as well. And as a just as we go forward too, it's you know maybe a generation or two ago, you were sort of you were in one box, be it physicist or you know, you know, high school teacher or whatever. But these days it's more multi hyphenate. Like right now, it's like you know you're you know physics PhD, you know uh, creative writer, uh, you know journalist, you know and, and so forth. And so it's like by the time your career is over, there's probably going to be like. <laughs> You know, six, seven, eight things that you're like, yes, I am this, I am this, I am this. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And um, I think I, I mean, I think the pandemic really showed everyone the value of having science trained journalists. Um, oh, for sure. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I've been pleasantly surprised at how transferable the skills are from, you know, being a researcher, a scientific researcher to, you know, undergoing the you know, investigation and or research that comes with reporting a piece. Very nice. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Katrina. And, um, I, you know, it, because it was a while ago, I can't remember if I primed the pump on this, but I always like to end these conversations by asking uh, the guests and the guests in this case being you for a recommendation for the listeners. And this can be anything. It can be like a pencil or brand of coffee, uh, adopting a dog. I, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it can be anything. So if you've given it any thought, uh, I, I'd love for you to offer recommendation to the listeners out there. No problem. How about an yeah. album? Please. Yeah, it's awesome. No, very few people have recommended music. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah. I highly recommend Steve Lacey's new album. It's called Gemini Writes. The whole thing is a bop. Great album. Very nice. Cool. <laughs> Oh, I love it. And uh, and and where can people find you online, Katrina, and get more familiar with you and your work if they don't know who you are? Oh, yeah. Um, I have a sometimes active Twitter page. Um, <laughs> it's at two underscores Katrina Renee, K-A-T-R-I-N-A-R-E-N-E-E. -E -E. Um, that will probably change to Katrina PhD or something after I graduate. <laughs> but that's what it is right now. So. <laughs> 
Oh, fantastic. Well, what a pleasure to speak to you, Katrina, with what I hope might be the first of many conversations we have down the road. It was uh, so, so great to hear you talk about science and writing and, uh, and your experience and bringing your experience to the page. Uh, it's a delightful experience for, for me as the reader, and I just got to commend you on the work you're doing. So thank, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and so it's very surreal to hear your voice coming through my computer. <laughs> <laughs> And so we've come to the end. Thanks for listening, CNFers. Thanks to Katrina for her patience and for coming on the show, talking shop. I think it might be the first interview she's ever done about her writing. She's a budding writer, and my gosh, if that essay for Wired is what a budding writer looks like, well, shit, I might make a go of it by the time I turn 70. All right, who... She's going to be like the next Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you care to share, link up to the show on social and tag it at CNF Pod so I can give you the James Hetfield gif you deserve. Jif, gif, don't matter, don't matter. Check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash CNF Pod. Shop around and see if there's anything there that will make you want to put a few bucks in the CNF Pod coffers. Every penny counts. Helps subsidize the audio magazine that I've been dragging my ass on, but... It's in the works. Every penny counts, CNFers. Lastly, brendanamera.com is where the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter is. I got to warn you, it does go up to 11. So that's it this week, CNFers. I don't have much by way of a parting shot. I got my teeth clean today, and my teeth look great. Uh, My teeth implants look great. I almost said my implants look great, but that sounds bad. I didn't have my usual hygienist, but I had someone who was, I appreciated, heavy-handed with the suction straw. Kept things from getting all gaggy. Uh, She did the thing where she asked me what I do, and I never quite know how to answer that question anymore. But I was like, I'm an editor, writer, podcaster. You know, it's weird you say something. You say you're a podcaster. You kind of remember, like, if you told anyone, you're like, I'm a blogger. And it just felt like, "Mm," like, oh, oh, honey. Uh, So that's how I feel like when I say I'm a podcaster, even though I've been doing this forever and that anyway and she was like oh we got to talking about books and a little bit of writing she's like oh my neighbor wrote a book she's like it's not nonfiction, but it's based on her life i'm like oh that's pretty cool and she's like so now i know an author and she's like have you written a book and i was like yeah about this horse like a billion years ago she's like oh that's cool and i'm like now you know two authors and she was like that's cool and then she blasted my face with radiation stay wild cnfers and if you can do interview see ya <laughs>